Campfire Classics is a classic literature podcast. However, your hosts will occasionally use not-so-classy language and immature humor to describe very mature situations. As such, listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Ken Sandberg. And I'm Heather Michelle Lawler. Welcome to Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. We're in an isolation booth that we built from carpet that we found at Home Depot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're coming at you all from our uh, homemade... uh, studio our little new voiceover studio in our apartment in philly yeah it's um i'm digging it in here the danger of this studio is that it's so like quiet and calming that i just kind of want to chill out like i already told ken so basically what we did um anyone out there that's looking to so our new apartment has this really cool space which is basically what sold us on it i think like and also location and you know, everything like that price and everything. But it has this beautiful space underneath the stairway because it's a two floor apartment. So we have the we have the main floor and then the garden level. Yeah. We say beautiful space. Think the apartment that Harry lived in yeah, for the I first mean, few years of his life with the Dursleys. It's under the stairs. Which is perfect for a studio because it, we what we've done is we went to Home Depot and bought like the scrap carpet like we found this huge roll of carpet for like less than 40 bucks and some curtains and we have created our own like private voice studio and I recorded an audition in here the other day and it sounded lit I was like oh my gosh this is amazing so we're pretty pumped about it it's still a work in progress we have to get I'm sitting on the floor right now one, because we don't only have one chair in the house still, because remember the movers we mentioned last week? They still suck. They still aren't here. So here we are. Um, so the chair Ken is sitting in is Lina's chair, our kitty. Uh, <laughs> yeah, she's very mad at me right now. Yeah. So she'll get over it. But the space is amazing. So we've we've used this time since we don't have boxes to unpack and whatnot. We have worked on this studio space yeah. and it, it's looking pretty great well and uh as i was saying as i told ken i was like i'm gonna also turn this into a multi-purpose space for like meditation and like yoga and stuff like that like not i mean can't do a lot of yoga it's, it's gonna be some pretty tight yoga it's tight yoga uh <laughs> it's like think of like if you ever been to a yoga studio that is they have like 10 too many people in there you can either go front to back or side to side yeah which a lot of yoga can be done that way. Yeah. So uh, if you're looking to create a sound studio, it is possible on a budget. Now, a word from our sponsors, making voiceover studios on a budget. Oh, wait, that's us. <laughs> and now a word from our sponsor, me. Me, because we don't have any yet. And uh, so we had to build a voice studio on a budget. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good segue to uh, if you'd like to give us money. Uh. Yeah, I suppose that's it's not entirely fair because we should say that uh, our sponsors oh, are our patrons, our patrons yeah. who um, have been donating a bit of money every month. And, and realistically, the oh, yeah, that paid for this, that that money. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
has has gone towards all of these uh, the the mm-hmm. the materials that are are lining the new studio. Um, they the that money paid for these mics when we upgraded to mm-hmm. them. That money uh, has paid the the cost of maintaining our website and keeping yep. our Podbean up and active and all of those things. So so yay, yeah, good for you. So we do have some private sponsors and thank you to our patrons. And um, if you want to join the ranks of our patrons, go ahead and go to uh, Patreon and look for Fifty Fifty Arts Production. You can probably also search Campfire Classics and find it that way. We have a link tree. We have a link tree. Yeah, search Campfire Classics link tree and it will take you to all the ways you can be a, a supporter of this fabulous podcast that you're about to listen to Woo. that is not a home improvement podcast. It <laughs> is not a build your own voice over studio podcast. Um, it's not even a trash the movers that are taking uh 10 days longer than they told us podcast. No, it's none of those things because what it actually is <laughs> is a clown podcast. No, wait. Okay, so wait, so. wait, 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 wait. Before you go into clown corner, I know it's somebody's first, but uh well no, do clown corner first and then <laughs> and then I'll talk about what we did last night. <laughs> Uh, so this week's Clown Corner is actually a clown update. Oh, no. Um, y'all remember Fabulous Freddy, right? Well, his mama, Campfire Classics fan and sometimes contributor, Lindsay, uh, yes. after hearing us cover Emmett Kelly, a.k.a. Weary Willie, sent us this update. Mm, it's creepy. <laughs> Hi, guys. I just listened to last week's episode, and I almost fell over when you started talking about Emmett Kelly. Remember the woman who gave me Freddy? Well, her husband was a huge collector of Emmett Kelly memorabilia. No. They've both passed, and I still have a box of their dolls for, quote, safekeeping. I don't feel like I can get rid of them because, you know, hauntings. So they're just relegated to the spare bedroom. She also went on to say that she personally is loving Clown Corner, so... I guess it's not going anywhere. Um, I know that you've already seen this picture. I have seen the picture. I think she also mentioned that she keeps the door to that spare bedroom closed because she's afraid of the dolls. (laughs) (laughs) And rightly so. And rightly so. I mean, not that I know, not that I would believe, I mean, I guess if the doll, so if we're going full Chucky on these things, uh, (laughs) like the door would stop it. But if it is like, containing an apparition or a spirit in it i'm guessing the door doesn't stop it but you know i'm gonna leave that to the uh the more experts on paranormal but you know well and if the real horror is just knowing that they're there and having to make (laughs) eye contact with those creepy little fuckers (laughs) they're really creepy then closing the door is going to stop that from happening that's true i guess she doesn't have to look at them so um but yeah so i'll be we'll we'll be uploading a picture of freddie and his weary willy friends soon in the meantime listener what would you do with a not necessarily treasured but definitely sentimental collection of dolls that might terrify you just a little? Let us know what you would do by emailing 5050artsproduction at gmail.com because I'm curious what your solution might be. Yeah, it. I have some weird like toys and stuff that like I don't want to get rid of either because they're sentimental or because they're like I have trouble getting rid of things that are that were gifts even if I never even liked them or used them sure because like there is there is in a way a spirit attached to those and it's the spirit of the person that gave you that gift so like even like 
gifts from like people I don't even talk to anymore. I'm still like, but it's a gift. And if I give it away, will they haunt me? Like it's kind of like <laughs> these are these are the brain activities of Heather Lawler on a regular basis. <laughs> So, yeah, but last night, so we had our own clown corner last night because um, we went to the haunted nights at Eastern State Penitentiary, um, which is is a haunted place, by the way. Oh, yeah. Um, haunted Penitentiary in, uh, I mean, in the middle of Philadelphia. It's freaking wild. If oh, you yeah. don't know it's there, if you're just driving around sort of the north end of Philly, all of a sudden you stumble upon this fucking castle that takes up like five blocks. I mean, straight up castle. Like I got some epic pictures last night because the moon was super bright and like the like the clouds and everything. And you take a picture from inside there and it looks like you're in a fucking British castle in the middle of the fjords or something like that. <laughs> I guess that would be Scotland. That would be uh, Scandinavia. Scandinavia. I don't the know fjords. where the fuck I am. <laughs> Some of those old places that I've been to, but I have clearly no recollection of. Although I suppose they might have fjords in Scotland and Ireland. They like, might. They, the, the northern shores yeah. get far enough north. It's it's kind of Scandinavian looking up there. Yeah. I mean, Scotland's basically uh, uh, Norway, right? Just the way that like Alaska is basically Russia. Yeah. That's how that works. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But no, we went to the- You're good at geography. I really am. And math and, you know, life. Uh, Last night we went to uh, the haunt and one of the haunt, like one of the, there's, okay, there's like six. There there are five sections to the haunt. Five sections. And they're all like relatively long. So you go through five different haunted houses with five different themes. And then they also have people wandering. If you've ever been to like Fright Nights at Bush Gardens or something, they have people wandering around that just jump out at you and scare you as you're just walking around the space. So it's just a totally haunted place. But one of the, one of the haunts was a like circus show. Like, and yep. it was just a bunch of clowns. Called and, Big Top. Yep. And we walked through one room and I, so you're not allowed to take pictures in there and stuff, understandably. Um, but we were standing in one of the rooms in this uh, Big Top haunting uh and I turned to Ken and I go this is clown corner because it was a room full of clown dolls and clown like figurines like horrifying and, circus clowns painted on the walls yeah and just- it was not that that was the nightmare that I always think of when Ken's like it's time for clown corner <laughs> like that's what I see before we talk about it so um, so sorry, the, um, I just I just remembered this, and I want to say it before uh, before I forget. Uh-huh. The clown motel that oh, you yes. covered. Um, so they this afternoon liked your picture of them on Instagram and started following Campfire Classics. Are you effing kidding me? I am not uh, kidding. I didn't see that. <laughs> see, we're basically famous. Maybe they'll become our sponsors. <laughs> oh my God, can you imagine? Clown Corner brought to you by the Clown Motel. The Clown Motel. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm just going to manifest that and put that out in the universe. So uh, hey. if you're listening, Clown Motel folks, um, you know, just reach out to 5050 Arts Production or find our link tree and... Uh, Get in touch. We are happy to do some business. We'd also love to, if you have any particularly interesting dolls, mm. we would love to talk about them yes. uh, and, and and turn them into part of Clown Corner. So we'll feel free to reach out and let them. us know. Um, but we'll definitely tag them in some of this week's promo stuff. And yeah, maybe even just go ahead and message them. Yeah. And uh, 
now I definitely want to stay there. So we could be like, <laughs> hi, you follow us on Instagram. We talked about you on our podcast. Cool. So um, so it's not a home improvement podcast. It's not a Trash the Movers podcast. It's not a DIY it's um, not a clown not podcast. Not actually clowns or haunted houses. What do we houses. do, Ken? This is a literary comedy podcast. Holy shit, we're so off topic. Yeah. <laughs> that never um, happens. Which is really our greatest skill, is talking about anything <laughs> except for the thing that we said we were going to talk about. However- We usually get back to it. Structurally, what we do each week is take turns reading short stories, cold reading short stories that have been pulled out of the public domain, which means that while you are listening, we are desperately- Desperately trying to struggle our way through this story for the first time, complete with some diabolical accent work and usually a string of, um, we'll say, um, semi-intentional penis jokes. Yeah, uh, like think Beavis and Butthead. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, speaking of uh, penis jokes. Oh, good. Um, what? Before uh, before we start reading the story, um, I chose the story this week, so I'm gonna Heather's gonna read it to you. But first, I'm gonna share a few fun facts. Um, and I fully intended to give you a story this week that was not a science fiction story because I feel <laughs> like, uh, as interesting as I find that stuff to be, sometimes I pick those stories too often, the sort of pulp sci-fi, and I don't like being predictable. And I'm kind of like, ah, do but I really want to do another one of guess. these? But in my search, I found an author who I think you'll agree when I share his name, we absolutely had to read. Okay. So. I'm scared. Writing for most of his career under the pseudonyms John Starr and Roger D., this week's author was born in Floyd County, Georgia on December 6th, 1914, and his parents gave him the name Roger D. A. Cock. Oh, man. Why do parents do that? <laughs> That's just mean. <laughs> <clears throat> So uh, Roger A. Cock. Rod D. A. Cock. Rod D. A. Cock. <laughs> spent almost his entire life in the town of Rome, Georgia. That's upsetting. <laughs> he graduated from the local high school in 1932. He got married in 1937, and he served in the U.S. Army Signal Corps during World War II, meaning he was a communications officer. He okay. was one of those guys whose job it was to make sure... You know, Everyone knew where they were supposed to go. Yeah, that's high stress. Yeah. Not that any job in war is not high stress. Yeah. So. Um, after the war, he worked as a letter carrier or a mailman, yeah. basically, for his hometown for 23 years. Aww. Uh, worked for the local newspaper for many years and was a member of both the Rome area writers and as a violin player, the Georgia Mountain Music Club. Okay, this guy sounds cool. Right? Like. This guy's like, okay, I do computers, I do violin, I do, uh, like, I, uh, I'm a writer, I do, work like, for the post I, work, office. I work for the government, like, this guy's like, like the fucking American dream right yeah. here. <laughs> like, um, he was also associated, although I, I, I couldn't find anything that said in what capacity, mm -hmm. I assume as a musician, he was also associated with the Rome Symphony Orchestra. Which sounds way cooler when you don't say Rome, Georgia. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> I was like, wait, oh, that's right. We're in Georgia, not Rome, Georgia. in yeah, Rome, yeah. <laughs> Italy. Uh, he also wrote like 12 books and dozens of short stories, an exact count of which is really hard to get because he was often publishing under pen names. Yes. Because, you know, who wants to publish under a cock? A cock. <laughs> His wife died in 2001. Oh, wow. He died three years later. Okay. Uh, in 2004. And by all accounts, he was most remembered by his neighbors as that friendly guy who liked to have people over to play music in the evenings. Oh, I love him. Yeah. He just had his little, like, his little music circle. And yeah, and so that is the life story of a sweet and wholesome man who just happened to be named a cock. Well, I guess when you get that name, you either lean into it or lean as far away as possible. Yeah. So, um, I just thought it was really important to say at this point that while obviously we are going to make a lot of jokes about a last name, a cock, I, it's really important to point out that that like truly it sounds like this guy was super stand up kind of pillar of the community kind of guy. And on this comedy podcast, we are obviously contractually <laughs> obligated to point out anything that sounds like a penis joke. But I have nothing but respect for this guy and how he seemed to have lived his life, because by the sounds of it, he he really spent a lot of time trying to make sure he was leaving the world a better place than he found it. Yeah, I love, and like, I'm gonna guess, like, it, he sounds like the kind of guy that would joke about it himself. Yeah. Like, and his middle name was D, so it's like, yep. like, like I think, like, thank God he didn't get a doctorate or he'd be like my chiropractor, Dr. D, so, <laughs> who just leans into it, and it's funny, man. Yep. Like, um, so yeah, it sounds like he probably was the kind of person that had a sense of humor about it, especially since he went through the military and, <laughs> you know, that got brought up a lot. Yeah. What, yeah. Would, what would he be? Private, private a cock? Private a cock. Private a cock. <laughs> and that is a good message or, to keep your a cock private. <laughs> or Captain a cock. Ca oh, that's very, at least, I wonder if he was. Corporal a cock. Corporal a cock. <laughs> what about Colonel a cock? <laughs> that actually, I think that one sounds better reversed. A cock colonel. <laughs> well, there are a lot of colonels that are cocks. You can ask my dad. He was in the military. <laughs> he met a few that he was like, how did that happen? Because they're dicks. <laughs> I won't name names. Uh, I think one of them has spent some time as a senator. Well, <laughs> yes, he, he didn't know that one well. He just had, he, he crossed paths with him at one point. Um. Anyway, so today's story came out in, I believe, 1954. I have that written down somewhere, but certainly in the mid-50s, and it's in the show notes. Uh, so this is the part where I have to clarify that uh, extensive research has been unable to find any evidence of a, an act of copyright. Um, and that's just not just me speaking. Um, several other websites have stated that this story is in the public domain. Mm -hmm. So if you hold the rights to the works of Mr. A. Cock and <laughs> want to contest our reading this, then just go ahead and shoot us a message. Um, today, we will be reading the story Rough Beast by Roger D. A. Cock. Oh my God. <laughs> Are we sure this is not softcore porn? No. We're not sure. We're not sure. Okay, that's right. We don't know anything about it. All right, here we go. Let's start this fire. Wee! <laughs> Rough Beast by Roger D. Acock. <laughs> so gonna be a porn. 
The field of the experimental telethink station in the Florida Keys, well, you know it's going to be fucked up because <laughs> it's in Florida. All right. It's not even that it's sci-fi. Nope, it's, it's just Florida. Florida sci-fi. <laughs> I'm going to do that whole sentence again because it's all one big sentence this beginning. Okay. Great, and because we got distracted by Florida. Florida is very distracting <laughs> for so many reasons. Get out and vote, by the way. The field of the experimental telethink station in the Florida Keys caught the fleeing Morid's attention just as its stolen Federation lifeboat plunged into the outer reaches of nightside atmosphere. You can always tell just how weird a story is going to be based on how many made-up words appear in the first paragraph. Yep, well, there was like <laughs> three in that one. So, yeah, Telethink, Morid, uh, the Federation is not a made-up word, but it is capitalized, which means it is it's probably a made-up made up federation. federation. And then Nightside night atmosphere. atmosphere. Like, Okay, so five. All right, here we go. The Morid reacted with the instant decision of a harried wolf stumbling upon a dark cave that offers not only sanctuary, but a lost lamb for supper as well. Ooh. Wow, that was dark. <laughs> with the pursuing Federation ship hot on its taloned heels, the Morid zeroed in on the telethink signals, fuzzy and incomprehensibly alien to its viciously direct mentality but indicating life and therefore food, and aimed straight for their source. Damn. Okay, so a Morid is a kind of like wolf creature? Uh, sounds, more like, sounds more like uh, some sort of bird creature. If it's got talons. Yeah, um, some sort of... Like, uh, like, some I mean, certainly some sort of alien, some sort of like dinosaur wolf bird. Yeah. My favorite kind of bird. All right. The lifeboat crashed headlong into the mangroves, fringing Dutchman's Key, perhaps 10 miles west of the Oversea Highway and less than two from the Telethink Station. The Morid emerged in snarling haste, anticipating the power plant's explosion by a matter of seconds. Damn. And vanished like a magenta-furred juggernaut into the moonlit riot of vegetation that crowded back from the mangrove strip of beach. The Morid considered it a success. Okay, wow. So that's very specific on where we are. Yeah. And we've got a magenta-furred, gigantic alien yeah. with talons. All right. Uh, yeah. The fact that it's hot pink is kind of hilarious. <laughs> All right. The lifeboat went up in a cataclysmic roar and flare of bluish light that brought Van, the telethink operator on duty, out of his Goldbird helmet into a prickly conviction of runaway range missiles. What's a Goldberg helmet? It's not capitalized, but yeah. What is a Goldberg helmet? Goldberg, if there's an H at the end, is a brand there's of not. like racing helmet. Nope. Unless the editor fucked up. That's probably what it is. That's probably what it is. I mean, yeah. Cool. So it's it's like sort of safety, like hard it's, hat. Yeah, it's a helmet. Helmet. It all but blinded and defeated Ellis, his partner, who was cruising with a portable telethink in the station launch through a low-lying maze of islands a quarter of a mile from Dutchman's Key. Their joint consideration was lost on the Morid because both at the moment were outside its avid reach. The teeming welter of life on Dutchman's Key was not. 
The Morid headed inland, sensing abundant quarry to satisfy the ravaging hunger that drove it, and that craving satisfied to offer ample scope to its joy of killing. Oh shit, so this beast is not just here looking for food. It's a murdering psychopath. It's a murder psychopath, hot pink alien. <laughs> Screw those little gray men with big eyes. Like, I'm looking out for the the furry people, people eat the, the one magenta. One horn flying purple people eat. Yeah, that's like, it's a furry magenta. <laughs> this is Attack of the Killer Teletubbies. Oh, well, they're terrifying. So I'm in, I, I'm, I'm actually like, that's scary. Fuzzy Wuzzy and Tipsy Whipsy and whatever their other names are. Oh my God. When I was at my, when I was at my reading, we went out after the, the like theater company took us out afterwards and they were having a Halloween event in this tiny town and we're all sitting there eating our pizza and having a beer and, and this one Teletubby, like this man who is probably like 4'11 or 5 feet tall, walks in. It's a man, not a child. Walks in dressed like the green Teletubby. <laughs> there were no other Teletubbies to be found. So he made the choice to be the green Teletubby alone or he abandoned the other Teletubbies to go to the bar. Or, Either way, hilarious. Or... He really is one of the Teletubbies. Yes. And that was another thing. We were like, he, that is the weirdest costume. But then one of our castmates left their purse at the uh, bar and one of, I had to bring it back to the hotel. Mm -hmm. And the way she described where the purse was, she said, it's by the Teletubby. (laughs) 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 Which is amazing. Anyway, back to the, the Thirsty, flesh-eating morid. Is there a pink Teletubby? There is not. Tinky Winky is purple. I'm disturbed that you know that. Tinky Winky is the one that everyone was like, all the Christian mothers were like, oh my God, the gay agenda. Oh, yeah. That's why. Because that was such a topic, uh, topical thing when we were growing up. Well, I mean, by growing up, I was like in high school, I think, when that was going on, but... The Morids escaped left Xantal, Federation ship commander, in a dilemma bordering upon the insoluble. Soluble? Insoluble. Unsolvable. Yeah. It would have been bad enough to lose so rare a specimen even on a barren world, but to have one so voracious at large upon one so teeming as the primitive telethink signals demonstrated with previously unsuspected intelligence was unthinkable. Oh, all right. So the Federation has lost this little monster, and they've been observing the primitive uh, Earth. Yes. And now they're going, oh, shit, oh, shit, there are people here. We messed up. This, at the outset, was Xantal's problem. Forbidden by strictest galactic injunction, he could not make planet fall and interfere with a previously unscouted primitive culture. Contrarywise, neither could civilized ethic condone his abandoning such an unsuspecting culture to the bloody mercies of a morid without every effort to correct his blunder. You don't fucked up, bro. <laughs> like yeah. what you you are at a rock and a hard place. This you? is uh, this is essentially the issue that the Prime Directive gives them in Star Trek all the time. Like you're not supposed to go interfere in the civilization of a planet that isn't ready for for um, outside interference, but... But you can't just leave with what you've done. Yeah, you, <laughs> you also can't just leave them behind to let them be eradicated. So, uh, you're fucked. 
Hanging in stationary orbit in order to keep a fixed relation to the Morid's landing site, the Federation commander debated earnestly with his staff until a sudden quickening of the barbarous telethink net made action imperative. Was he going to get like a do something, you fucker? Yeah. <laughs> Two of the Autoth... Autothons? 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 Okay. Two of the auto of the autochthons. That's what I would say, yeah. Okay. Two of the autochthons were isolated on a small island with the Morid, unwarned that they were doomed. Ah, okay. So it's it is a real word. Oh, <laughs> fun. Autochthon. Autochthon. The original or indigenous inhabitant of a place. Oh wow. So in this case, humans. Earthlings. Yeah. Us. Us. <laughs> We're an autochthon. Acock is smart. He uses weird words. Yeah, I don't love him. Uh. <laughs> Two of the autochthons were isolated on a small island with the Morid, unwarned that they were doomed. So he grouped his staff about him, sitting, crouching, coiling, or hovering as individual necessity demanded, and as one entity put the whole into rapport with the all but meaningless signals that funneled up from the telethink station in the Florida Keys. And in doing so, roused a consternation as great as his own and infinitely more immediate. So, yes, let's get shit done. The flash brought Van away from the telethink council and out of the Quonset? Quonset. A building made of corrugated metal and having a semicircular cross section. So, um, Quonset Station would be a, a, a little like metal station that kind of looks like one of those wavy metal garages. Okay. Oh, okay. Like a, a, sh a shit tin brick house. Yeah. Shit, <laughs> shit tin brick house, yes. A shit tin brick house. <laughs> yeah, exactly like that. The flash brought Van away from the telethink console and on and out to the Quonset station to stare shakingly across the tangle of mangrove islands to the west. Wyman came out a moment later on the run when the teeth-jarring blast of the explosion woke him. They stood together on the moon-bright sand and Van relayed in four words the total of his information. It fell over there, Van said. A pale pinkish cloud of smoke and steam rose and drifted phosphorescently toward a non-committal moon. Uh-oh. Wait, so these these so are American. These, these are humans now. These two guys now. are humans. Because there was stationed a... Stationed at, uh, at okay. a, whatever Telethink console is, but it sounds like basically a radio station. Okay, so we've got the opening, which explains what's going on. We had the the people in the alien spaceship freaking out in yes. the second section and now we are hearing from the humans on van on and land. van and wayman or whatever are the, yeah. the the two the two um autochthons that are stuck on the key with the morid well they're at like the science station but yeah. they don't know the morid's there they don't know the morid's there they just know something fell out of the sky maybe a morid actually just wants love and he's gonna pet them and they're gonna be best friends that's what I think. That's what's gonna happen. I think that's that's gonna be the the uh, in the end. It's actually just a um, red panda. Oh, red pandas! They're so cute. You just give them apple slices, and they love you forever. <laughs> 
Second key out, Wyman said. That would be Dutchman's, where the hermit lives. Oh, not the hermit. Oh, uh-oh. <laughs> well, I guess I guess if you're going to be a hermit, uh, the Florida Keys is a terrible place to be. Because so. <laughs> you can't live underground because everything is below sea level almost. And yep. it's fucking crowded with tourists and crazy people. Yep, but if he's out on a key by himself, that's not so bad. Yeah, but... For hermiting. Yeah, for in hermiting. In the 50s. Oh, yeah, we're in the 50s. That's true. Van nodded, drawing minimal reassurance from the fact that there had been no mushroom. It could have been atomic, of course, because it's, you know, the 50s. Yeah. The Gulf breeze was steady out of the west with its perpetual salt and mangrove smell. The Geigers will tell us soon enough, Wyman said. Not that it'll help us with Ellis out in the launch. So uh, I was wrong. Van and Wyman are not the two alone with the monster. The, the two alone with the monster on Dutchman's Key are the hermit. And I think Ellis was in like a a little plane or something. Okay, so now we have a third location. So fourth, third location. Third location. Okay. The alien, Ellis, and the hermit are on Dutchman's Key. Yeah. Um, Zantel, or whatever his name is, and his crew are up on their Federation ship yep. in orbit. And then... Van Wyman and, and Wyman Van are uh, together in the like at headquarters, the Telethink station. Yeah, like basically on on mainland. Yeah. Okay. They looked at each other in sudden shock of joint realization. The launch, Van said. Ellis is out there with the portable Telethink rig. We were working out field strength ratios for personal equipment. They dived for their quonset together. Van, smaller and more agile than the deliberate Wyman, reached the Telethink first. Nothing but the regular standby carrier from Washington, Van said. Ellis may have been directly under the thing when it struck. He was working towards Dutchman's Key, hoping for a glimpse of the hermit. Maybe he was wearing the Telethink when the blast came, Wyman said. Then, with characteristic practicality, Better image Washington about this while we're waiting for Ellis to report in. Can't use the net radio. We'd start a panic. Van settled himself at the console. I'll try. That is, if I can get across anything beyond the sort of subliminal rot we've been trading lately. He signaled for contact and felt the Washington operator's answer surge of subconscious resentment as being disturbed. Oh, better image. So the way they're communicating is through some sort of like telepathic link. The humans? Yeah, well, this clearly isn't taking place in 1950s present day. It's oh. probably like they work for some sort of secret government organization. Okay. And this is whatever their advanced telecommunication thing is. He signaled for contact and felt the Washington operator's answering surge of subconscious resentment at being disturbed. With the closing of the net, the now familiar giddiness of partial rapport came on him, together with the oppressive sense of bodily sharing. There was a sudden trickle of saliva in his mouth, and he resisted the desire to spit. Ew. <laughs> Washington is having a midnight snack, Van said. Rotted sardines and Limburger, I think. <laughs> oh, they can taste what they're tasting, too. Ew. Why is he eating rotted sardines? Because he's gross. Ew. He made correction when the Washington operator radiated indignation. Goose liver and dill pickles, then, but you wouldn't guess it. 
Salt tastes like brass filings. Gross. Wyman said shortly, get on with it. You can clown later. <laughs> Van visualized the flare of explosion and winced at the panicky hammer and sickled surmise that came back to him. How would I know, he said aloud. We have a man out. He recalled the inherent limitation of phonetics then and fell back upon imagery, picturing Ellis's launch heading toward an island luridly lighted by the blast. For effect, he added, on the key's minuscule beach, a totally imaginary shack of driftwood, complete with bearded hermit. <laughs> okay, explain. He's trying to communicate with Washington what's going on. Yes. But he can't just say words. Yes. So he's trying to conjure up a... He's clearly irritated by the way this technology works. Okay. Because he connected with this guy and he was like, oh God, what the fuck are you eating? This is disgusting. And and the guy tried, sent him an image going like, oh, okay, so duck liver and dill pickles. Gross. Um, and then he visualized, to try to tell the guy what was going on, he visualized a big explosion and the guy panicked. Because okay. he's like, oh, shit, explosion. Are we under attack? What's going on? And they went, oh, god damn. No, never mind. Hang on. Let me backtrack. And he tried to explain with words and then remembered the limitation of phonetics, meaning words don't translate. Yeah. So he decided to picture an explosion over uh, the beach where it happened with their co-worker Ellis in his airplane or whatever headed towards the beach. Okay. And a little hermit shack on the beach. Okay. And that is the mental picture that he's sending to Washington. Okay. Okay. He knew immediately when authorities arrived at the other end of the net. There was a mental backwash of conversation that told him his orders even before the Washington operator set himself for the relay. They want an eyewitness account from Ellis, he told Wyman, as if... Ellis broke into the net at that moment, radiating a hazy image. He was still partially blinded from the glare of the blast, of a lowering key overhung by a dwindling pall of pinkish smoke. In the foreground of lagoon and mangrove stood a stilted shack, not unlike the one Van had pictured, but without the hermit. Instead, the rickety elevation of thatched porch was a blot of stable darkness relieved only by a pair of slanted yellow eyes gleaming close to the door. Uh-oh. Okay, so now Ellis has reported in? Yes. So Ellis turned on his, his own... His telethink. Yeah. So a telethink, we now know, is a, like, uh, is, uh, uh, like, um... Telephone for thinking. For It's it's a telephone, it's a, it's a computer for telepathy, or... Yeah. Okay, so now I know why it's called a telethink. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And now we have a big line on a break. Okay, so the, the pink, it seems like Pinky has shown up on the porch. Yeah. That's what I'm guessing the slanty is, yellow eyes is are. staring at the hermit shack and or already ate the hermit. And is staring out and from the shack. And is staring out at the shack. One or the other. One or the other. Or the hermit is the pink thing. I don't know. All right. And then we have a big line, which means we're changing chunk, locations. Chunk. Climactically, Xantal entered the net, then with an impact of total information that was more than the human psyche, conditioned to sterilize thinking by years of phonetic communication could bear. 
Ah, okay. Xantal talking to them now? Yes, so Xantal entered the, the ThinkNet oh. and sent them a blast of information that none of them could comprehend because they're so used to getting linear thoughts and he sent them too much information all at once. Stupid alien. Okay. The Washington operator screamed and tore off his helmet, requiring restraint until he could compose himself enough to relay his message. Ellis, in his launch, fainted dead away and ran the boat headlong aground the beach of Dutchman's Key. Oh, damn. Wow, this alien fucked up. Yep. He just, like, gave them all strokes. Uh, Van reeled in his chair, teetering between shock and lunacy, until Wyman caught him and slid the telethink from his head. It was minutes before Van could speak. When he did, it was with a macabre flippancy that Wyman found more convincing than any dramatics. It's come, Van said. There's an interstellar ship out there with a thousand odd crew that would give Dolly himself nightmares. <laughs> wow, um, whatever that Xantal sent as a picture, fucking... Yeah. <laughs> was a little much. He could have just sent, you know, like an image of this monster or something. Like <laughs> can be like this is how you kill it. Um yeah, uh instead apparently he sent a hellscape of um of melting clocks. A hellscape of melting clocks and apparently the death star or something. <laughs> <laughs> Wyman had to shake him forcibly before he could continue. They're sorry they can't put down and help us, Van said. Galactic regulations, it seems, but they feel they should warn us that they've let some sort of bloodthirsty jungle monster, a specimen they were freighting to an interplanetary zoo, escape in a lifeboat. It's loose down here. It is a killer red panda. It just is a killer red panda. They were trying to get it to the zoo and he got out. And it didn't want to... Did these fucking people never see Jurassic Park? These things don't want to be caged and put on display. <laughs> Come on, people. Dutchman's key, Wyman breathed. What kind of brute could live through a blast like that? It left the lifeboat before the power plant blew, Van said. They're tracking its aura now. It's intelligence to a degree, about on par with ourselves, I gather, and it's big. It's the largest and most vicious life form they've met in kilo years of star trading. Kilo years? He frowned over a concept unsuited to words. Longer than thousands, their culture goes back so far that the term doesn't register. Ah, that's why kilo, kilo years, years is so weird. Because they don't, they've been around so much longer than us. Yeah. Ellis, Wyman said, tell him to shear off. Tell him to keep away from that island. Oh, they just realized they're like, our friend's there. Yep. Oopsie. Van clapped on the Telethink helmet and felt real panic when he found the net vacant except for a near-hysterical Washington operator. Aliens are off the air, he said, but I can't feel Ellis. Maybe he isn't wearing his Telethink. I'll try his launch radio. He had the microphone in his hand when Van said, They got the message in Washington and they're petrified. I asked for a copter to pick up Ellis and the hermit if they can reach him before this thing does. But they're thinking along different lines. They're sending a squadron of jet bombers with non-atomic weaponry to make sure the beast doesn't escape to the mainland and devastate the countryside. Wyman said incredulously, they'll blow the keys to bits. What about Ellis and the hermit? 
Ellis is to evacuate him if possible. They're giving us 20 minutes before the jets come. After that, he didn't have to finish. Dun dun. Well, that's fucked up. <laughs> yeah, you should always let him finish. Well, <laughs> they're very turned on by uh, interplanetary war. Um, hey, sometimes violence can be sexy. Or that's, something. That's what some people say, yes. And then we have another line, so shunk, shunk. here we go to somewhere else. At midnight old, Charlie... Now, who's the fuck is this? <laughs> who's Charlie Trask? Is this the hermit? Old Charlie Trask. Maybe this is the hermit. Could be. At midnight, at midnight old, Charlie Trask was waiting knee-deep in the east side grass flats of his private lagoon. Yes, this yep. is the hermit. Methodically netting shrimp that darted to the ooze-clouded area stirred up by his ragged wading shoes. An empty gunny sack hung across one shoulder, ready for the coon oysters he would pick. It's a coon oyster. Short for raccoon oyster. An oyster growing on the shores of the sea, having narrow and elongated shell. It's just a type of oyster. Okay, cool. Ready for the coon oysters he would pick for mangrove roots on his way back to his shack. In his dour and antisocial way, Charlie was content. He was he had nearly enough shrimp for boiling and for bait, with the prospect of coon oyster stew in the offing. He had tobacco for his pipe and cartridges for his single shot point uh, for his single shot twenty two rifle and a batch of potent homebrew ready for the bo- bottling. Ooh. So this guy likes his guns, his beer, his smoking, and he likes oyster stew. Yep. <laughs> he sounds like someone, he sounds like not my favorite type of white person. He sounds like someone who lives in Florida. He sounds like someone who lives in Florida <laughs> or like in the middle of nowhere, Oregon or something. Yeah. He's like, I got my guns and my bait and my smoking tobacco. Not to offend anybody out there, but like, We've said this on the podcast before. Probably not my favorite type of white people. What more could a man want? You know, not other people or company or a woman or anything or a man or whatever. A puppy. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. The blast and glare of the Morid's landing on the western fringe of his key jarred Charlie with his mellow mood like a clear sky thunderbolt. The concussion rattled what teeth remained to him and brought a distant squall from his cat. Oh, he oh, had a cat. He does have a cat. Okay. Not um, many teeth, but a cat. Well, again, sounds like a swamp person. Yeah. Like, he sounds like, uh, what's that TV show? Like Duck Dynasty. Well, <laughs> yes, there's Duck Dynasty, <laughs> but I think there's another show. that I, I've never seen it. I think it's, like, called Swamp People or something. Oh, it's, like, people who be. live in, like, the, like, bayou and, like you know, have no teeth. Like, think um, think in, like, Princess and the Frog, the guys that are hunting frogs. They have, like, four <laughs> teeth. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, those guys. All right. Uh, but he's got his kitty cat, and his cat um, is named Max. Okay. Aw. Brought a distant squall from his cat, a scared and cynical old Tom named Max at the shack. <laughs> Max is sweet old Tomcat. Yeah. Damn rockets, was Charlie's instant thought. Of course. Fool around till they blow us all to hell. He's the first one that gets a distinct voice because I actually know what this guy's about from the beginning. Okay. This guy is just fuck around and find out. The rosy phosphorescence drifting up from the mangroves a quarter of a mile away colored his resentment with alarm. 
A blast like that could start a fire and burn across the quay and gut his shack. Grumbling at the interruption of his midnight foray, Charlie crimped the lid tight on his shrimp bucket and stalked back along the lagoon towards his shack. The coon oysters would have to wait. Five minutes later, he reached his personal castle, perched on precarious piling in a gap hewn from the mangroves. The moon made it to Charlie, a thing of black and silver beauty, with Max's yellow eyes gleaming from the porch floor like wicked welcoming beacons. So those are the yellow eyes. Kitty eyes. Or are they? <laughs> or maybe not. Still muttering, Charlie waded out of the shallow water ooze and stumped in squishing shoes up the ladder to his shack. The shrimp bucket he hung on a wall peg out of Max's calculating reach. <laughs> yeah, that cat will eat that shit. He found his pipe in the kitchen and loaded and lighted it, deliberately because the capacity for haste was not in him. His homebrew crock bubbled seductively, and he took time out to raise the grimy toweling that covered it and sniff appreciatively. Ready to camp by the time I come back and get the shrimp graded, he told Matt. <laughs> he told Max. <laughs> he changed his dripping brogans. The kind of shoe? His, yeah, his, his boots. Yeah. He changed his dripping brogans for a pair of snake-proof boots. Snake-proof? Hell yeah. They make snake-proof boots. I well, imagine that, they're yeah, just that, really they're like thick rubber, leather. Like, or thick rubber yeah. or thick, yeah. Actually, uh, a friend Steel. of mine I met working on the ship, uh, the vocalist, Melissa, mm -hmm. who I've talked about, who's fabulous. She, um, She's from a place in Texas um, that... They every year they have the uh, I forget what it's called, but it's basically the snake pit queen. And she won that year. And so she stood in a um, pit full of like 250 rattlesnakes singing. That sounds like not my favorite competition to win. And I'll show you a picture later, but she has uh, pants like she has basically like rubber overalls on all, all that go all the way up to here, basically. So that's probably snake snake. Proof shoes, snake proof boots. <laughs> snake proof boots. Snake proof boots. That's a good country song. <laughs> I wore my snake proof boots, then I went down to the bar. And then I got a drink and I left my door ajar. And then I got some food and You just let that keep going. I sure did, because I am definitely putting music under that before we release this episode. I love that the... the, the so that is 100%. I love that the, that love that is, the song Snake Proof Boots became about a wet dream this man yep. had after he went to the bar. And why not? Oh, yeah. Well, that's going to go... Yeah, okay. I, yep. yep. All right. Yep. Well, that's the, Oh, that is getting musical accompaniment. Take that, Taylor Swift. There might there might be some backing <laughs> vocals. We'll we'll see how much time I have to really edit this Ta one. Taylor Swift has no idea what she's what's coming at her. She got the top ten. Watch out for snake proof boots. <laughs> 
He changed his dripping brogans for a pair of snake-proof boots and took down his 22 rifle from its pegs. Not because he really imagined that anyone might have lived through such a blast, but because strangers that radio... Them radio fellas two keys east, for instance, might take it in their heads to come prying around. <laughs> this guy is the best. He was halfway across the key when the drone of Ellis's launch entering his lagoon justified his suspicions. Sun done. Dun dun dun. So in this case, I'm just finally figuring out launch is a noun, not a verb. Launch is yeah, launch the is type the, of the ship, boat it, or boat or ship in. or whatever it is. Yeah. One one man watercraft. Yeah. I kept in my head thinking like it was like rocket a rocket launch. launch. Yeah. Yeah. Same. Okay. Now we have another line. Dun dun. Charlie's investigation was soon over. A dying plume of steam rising from a circle of battered mangroves told him that no danger of fire impended, and he turned back in relief. It did not occur to him that the pilot of his hypothetical rocket might be lying desperately injured in the shallow water at the mercy of sharks and crocodiles, but not snakes, because he's got snake-proof boots. No. If it had, he would not have moved to help. Any fool who got himself into such a spot, in Charlie's rude philosophy, could get himself out. <laughs> what a what a fun guy. Charming man. The drone of the launch's engine was loud when it reached his shack. The boat, handled by a pilot grotesque in what Charlie took at first for a diver's helmet, was heading directly for his landing at an unsafe speed. Serve him right if he shows on an oyster bed and rips his bottom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hate it when oysters rip my bottom. Oh, that's, yeah, that sounds like an unpleasant evening. As if on cue, the boat swerved sharply. Its pilot came half erect. Oh, no. Wow. He came half erect? That's, that's hard, to, hard do. to do. I feel like that's something like, like, that. Well, I mean, if he's getting his bottom ripped. Yeah, maybe that, uh, yeah, he's what he's into. Cool. His, its pilot came half erect, arms flung wide in a convulsive gesture. The engine roared wildly. The boat heeled, slamming its occupant against the right gunwale. What? It's a gunwale. <laughs> Gunnel, I think. Gunnel? Oh. Um. Gunwall? Gun, gunwall? Gunnel? Gunnel. The upper edge of the side of a boat or ship. Okay. So, the the top of the railing, the okay. gunnel. The boat heeled, slamming its occupant against the right gunnel, and blasted straight for Charlie's shack. Miraculously, it missed the shack's piling and lunged half its length upon the sand. The engine roar died instantly. The pilot was thrown headlong overside. Goldberg helmet flying off in mid-arc to lie stunned at the foot of Charlie's ladder. Callously, Charlie stepped over Ellis's twitching form and stumped up the ladder to his shack. <laughs> what the fuck? He was, he was trying to get there to rescue your ass, motherfucker. <laughs> of course, he doesn't know that at this point. He doesn't know that. He doesn't know what's going on. He probably doesn't care. <laughs> He's like, whatever. Max, who had taken to the porch rafters at the crash of the launch came meowing gingerly down to meet him. Like, meow, 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 meow. It's all right, Charlie told him. Just some fool that don't know how to handle a boat. <laughs> <laughs> he leaned his rifle against the wall and brought a split bamboo chair from the kitchen. 
It was not too late, the bucket, when he took it from its peg, still slithering satisfactorily with live shrimp. He's like, okay, I'm going fishing oh, again. Good. I did. I didn't. This didn't take too long. My shrimp are Jesus still alive. Christ. We're good. The squawking of the launch radio roused Ellis. He groaned and sat up, dazed and disoriented by the combined shock of Xanol's telepathic bombshell and his own rude landing, just as Wyman gave up his attempt at radio contact. Okay, so that's why they couldn't reach him earlier. He was unconscious. He was like, he passed the fuck out yeah. in his boat. Yeah. Okay. In the silence that fell, Ellis would have fainted again, except for the chilling knowledge that he was unarmed and afoot at the same key with a man-eating alien monster that might make its appearance at any moment. Here's the plot twist. Charlie is the man-eating <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little more scared of Charlie than this. Max this, is the man-eating alien the, monster. The kitty cat? Yeah. So the, the man-eating alien monster might appear at any moment. He collected wits and breath to stave off the black pall of shock that still threatened. Come down from there and help me push the launch off, he called up to Charlie Trask. We've got to get off this key, fast. Charlie separated a menu-sized shrimp from his bucket. Ye grounded her, he said sourly. Push her off yourself. <laughs> Listen, Ellis said desperately. That blast was a ship from space, from another star. A wild animal escaped from it. Something worse than you ever dreamed of. We've got to get out of here before it finds us. Charlie grunted and chose another shrimp. He's just sitting on the fucking patio eating shrimp. Alien animal, huh? He's like, where the fuck? <laughs> Good hunting. Oh, my gosh. The morid, as Xantal had pictured it, rose vividly in Ellis's memory. Fanged and shaggy and insatiably voracious, a magenta-furred urzine embodiment of bloodlust made the worst by its near-human intelligence. Ursine. Okay, so it's like a bear. No such varmint in these keys, old Charlie <laughs> said. The launch radio bared again in Wyman's voice, speaking urgently of jet bombers and deadlines. A glance at his watch brought Ellis up from the sand in galvanic resolution. In 20 minutes, he said grimly, a squadron of planes will pinpoint this key and blast it out of the water. I'm not going to be eaten alive or blown to bits arguing with you. If I can't push the launch off alone, I'll swim. He scooped up his fellow Telethink helmet and ran for the launch. At the fourth step, his foot caught in an iron-hard stump of a mangrove root that had been chopped off inches above the sand, and he fell heavily. Pain blinded him. His right ankle lanced with fire and went numb. Oh, fuck. God damn it. He just He's broke his broke fucking his leg. leg. He fought to rise and fell again when the ankle collapsed under him. He broke his ankle. Yep. Hell, he said. Just before blackness claimed him for the second time, I've broken my leg. Okay, so he broke his leg. Yep. There we go. His 12 minutes had dwindled to seven when Ellis roused. He tried to stand, his twisted ankle momentarily forgotten, and gave it up when the mangroves spun dizzily before his eyes. He couldn't afford to pass out again. He made one last-ditch bid for help. My leg's broken, he yelled up to old Charlie Trask. Get down here and lend a hand. Charlie glowered and said nothing. Max bounded down the ladder. Oh, kitty cat coming to help. Max bounded down the ladder, tail stiffly erect and scarred eyes cocked at the underbrush in baleful curiosity. 
The thing is coming this way, Ellis called. Your cat senses it. Will you let us all be killed? Charlie Trask grated another shrimp. God damn it. <laughs> Dick. Swearing bitterly, Ellis caught... <laughs> Notice how we didn't get a, uh, a line. So this is what I'm going to imagine Ellis said, and you get to bleep it all out. They couldn't print that in the 50s. No. It would have been <laughs> um, against the decency. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Swearing bitterly, Ellis caught up his telethink helmet and slid it over his head. He found the net in a welter of confusion. Washington demanded further information. Van at the station was calling him frantically. His own scramble for help images only added to the mental babble. On the Federation ship, confusion was nearly as rampant. Xantal's dilemma still held. He could not make planet fall. Time was too short for aid now in any case. But neither could he. With clear galactic conscience, desert the harried primitives below while hope remained. Ellis's predicament forced Xantal to decision. He could only follow the Morid's aura and relay its progress. Oh good, now he can like tell him where it is. It could not be helped that the relaying image was blurred by definition and weirdly askew. The Morid's visual and auditory range differed so sharply from either human or galactic that even over the ship's wonderfully selective telecommunicator, little of the Morid's immediate surroundings came through clearly. Its aura arrived with a burning intensity that turned Xantal and his group faint with empathetic horror. But the fact that the Morid had just made its first kill obliterated all detail for the moment beyond a shocking welter of blood and torn flesh. He just ate that just kitty cat, didn't he? Killed something. I think he just killed Max. No. Ellis fared a little better under the second telepathic blast than under the first. He managed to snatch off his telethink helmet just in time. The thing just killed something out there, he yelled at Charlie Trask. It's coming this way. Are you going to sit there and... Charlie grated his last edible shrimp, took up his bucket, and went inside. The leisurely clinking of homebrew bottles drifted after him, clear and musical on the still, hot air. <laughs> He's like, I need to finish my dinner and drink my beer first. Ellis looked at his watch and considered prayer. He had three minutes left. When Morid came, Ellis was sitting dumbly on the sand. Oh, shit. <laughs> when the Morid came, Ellis was sitting dumbly on the sand, nursing his broken ankle and considering with a shock-detached part of his mind a fragmentary line of some long-forgotten school day's poem. What rough beast is this? The rest saluted him. Isn't that oh. from uh, The Tempest? It very well could be. That sounds like Taliban? right. The Second Coming by William Butler Yeats. Oh, my favorite poem. <laughs> cool. So it's a Yeats poem. Yeah. All right. It also sounds like something they say to describe Caliban for yeah. sure. The underbrush beyond the shack rustled, and Morid's ravaging image sprang to Ellis's mind with a clarity that shook his three net participants to the core. One of them passed endurance. Van in the station said, Dear God, and braced himself for the end. In Washington, the operator fainted and had been dragged from his console. 
Aboard the Federation ship, Xantal radiated a shaken enough and tentacled a stud that sent his craft flashing on its way through subspace. Xantal chicken shit out. He just fucking like was like, bye. Yep. <laughs> At Charlie Trash Shack, Max bounded across the clearing and into the brush. There followed a riot of squalling and screaming that brought Charlie out of his shack on the run. Ellis sat numbly, beyond shock, waiting for the worst. Unaccountably, the worst was delayed. Charlie came back, clutching a protesting Max by the scruff of the neck <laughs> and threw down something at Ellis's feet. Something small and limp and magenta-furred, smeared with greenish blood and very, very dead. <laughs> what? I wondered if that's where this was going. Oh, my God. There's your varmint. Oh, I knew it was. I knew Charlie was going to save the day. I knew that was coming, but like. Well, Max. Well, Max saved the day. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> See? The cat is a vicious beast. So, uh, finish Wait, the story yeah. and then we'll, yeah. There's your varmint, said Charlie. With one minute remaining before the promised bombers roared over Ellis with a frozen clarity he had not dreamed he possessed, radiated a final message before he fainted again. Call off the jets, he said, in effect. It's over. The beast is dead. The hermit's cat killed it. <laughs> so I, I really hope that Charlie Trask has a sign on his shack that says, Killer Cat. <laughs> Beware, Killer Cat. Killer of the beast. Oh, my God. An hour later at the station, his ankle bandaged and his third cup of coffee in hand, Ellis could review it all with some coherence. We didn't consider the business of relative size, he said. Neither did our galactic friends. Apparently they're small, and so are all the other species they've met with before. Maybe we're something unique in the universe after all, and maybe it's a good thing that they didn't land and learn how unique. Oh, that's... <laughs> It figures, Wyman said. Washington let it out on the air that DF stations made a fix on the spaceship before it jumped off. It measured only 22 feet. <laughs> oh my God, all the aliens are teeny They're tiny. tiny. <laughs> Van said wonderingly, and there were hundreds of them on board. Gentlemen, we are bro, bro, ding, what? <laughs> I think this whole sentence is a reference to Gulliver's Travels. Yeah. So, uh, Brobding na Nag... God damn it. Mm-hmm. Brobding Nangians yeah. uh, are the giants from Gulliver's Travels. Cool. And Lilliputians are the are little Are the people. little ones. And there were hundreds of them aboard. Gentlemen, we are Brobding Nagians in a universe of Lillip... How do you say it again? Lilliputians. In a universe of Lilliputians. <laughs> I've been trying, Ellis said irrelevantly, to recall a poem I read once in school. I've forgotten the author and all the verse but one line. It goes, What rough beast is this? Van quoted. You were thinking about it hard enough when the debacle and the brush took place. The image you radiated was rough enough. It shocked the pants off us. <laughs> and off the galactics, Wyman said. The shoe is on the other foot now, I think. <laughs> he went to the Quonset door and looked out and up, listening. Jets, the Washington brass on its way to cross-examine us. The other foot, Van said. Don't be cryptic, man. Whose foot? Theirs, Ellis said. Don't you see? 
One of these days, we'll be going out there to make our own place in the galaxy. With our size and disposition, how do you think we'll seem to those gentle little people? Van whistled in belating understanding. Rough, he said. The end. <laughs> All right. So that was very difficult to read, and I had it took about four sections to understand. It wasn't until Charlie Trask was introduced <laughs> that I really understood what was going on. Started, started connecting to a character, which I think. Well, not even connecting to a character, but we're like really understanding what was going on because it was written in sections. So mm -hmm. like you got what was going on here. It was written like a TV show. Yeah. Here's what's happening here. And then here's what's happening here. And then here's what's happening there. And then you have the first interaction. And so once people started interacting with each other, I was like, oh, okay. We got we got through all the uh, the um, the techno babbling setup the, the techno babble like learning the language yeah. uh, getting all the um, exposition out yeah um, and then it became a story about humans being stupid so I kind <laughs> and of had cats a feeling, being awesome I kind of had a feeling I knew that it was going to end that like all of the aliens were little and this terrifying beast this oversized beast was actually like the size of a chipmunk yeah. because um there is there are like two paragraphs in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy where almost exactly the same thing happens two alien races are at war with each other and one of them sends this t this huge massive destruction fleet across the galaxy to come destroy the other one and the entire fleet is eaten by a dog because they didn't realize how small they were in comparison, in comparison to, to the rest of the yeah, world. Yeah. Yeah. Or the rest of the like universe. Yeah. Um, so somewhere along the line, I found myself going, this is going to be one of those twists. We're working up this terrifying, nasty, gnarly beast. So it and was it's going like, to look exactly like they're describing it, except it's going to be the size of a large Of like rat. a mouse. Yeah. yeah. It's something a cat would kill. Yeah. <laughs> So it wasn't a red panda, but it was like a chipmunk. Yeah. yeah. It was a really angry chipmunk. <laughs> really? It was a rabid chipmunk. Yeah. And Max the kitty cat went, I got this shit. I got it. I'm on it. I didn't get any shrimp for dinner, so I'm going to go get me my dinner. <laughs> yeah. Which means whatever it was that it killed on the way was probably like a beetle or a oh, cockroach yeah. or a, or like, a shrimp. Yeah. Like something <laughs> like a fish. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So, yay. Well, that was fun. Once I got, once I like got into the, like got, got into the world of the story. Yeah. I think that's the hardest thing when we read the sci-fi ones is cause like, I know the world of Star Wars. I know the world of Star Trek. I know like, but then when you read someone's new sci-fi that you don't know the world, it takes, especially when you're reading it out loud and yeah. you're, you're reading it as it like comes to, for, like, you're like, what is happening? And then. You have to stop and like figure it out. Yeah. But once you get into the world, it all comes together and it's very fun. And I love that the cat was the hero of this story. Yay. <laughs> hey, listener. Thanks for joining us. Uh, that was a fun one. Please reach out and uh, let us know what you thought of that story. And more importantly, what you thought of Heather's song. <laughs> Snake proof boots. Snake proof boots, man. <laughs> Which we're hoping you can help reach the top of the country charts 
uh, by Christmas. Yeah, someone's got to take Taylor Swift down. <laughs> Kanye West is gone, thank God. <laughs> it does seem fitting that he has crashed and burned. The week that she gets to... And now Taylor oh, yeah. Swift is riding a high. It's pretty fucking like... I mean, that's that's what I talk about when I say karma's going to yeah. get you, motherfucker, because it's been like a decade, but it, it happened. Yeah. It came around. Yeah, yeah. It's been a decade, and she has 10 top 10 hits yeah and he is he lost all his money which i i read a thing this morning apparently because she has all top 10 spots on the billboard 100 that means this is the first time ever that there has not been a man in the top 10 which is so like anywhere in the top 10 shocking yeah good for her good for her for uh slapping the patriarchy of the music industry (laughs) down yes girl all right anyway I think that's it. Yeah. yeah. So uh, shoot us a message. Let me know what you thought. Let us know what you thought of all of that, including if you have anything you would like to contribute to Clown Corner or um, <laughs> our special little haunted hour thing. Yeah. At, if you at the have beginning haunted of the show. dolls, Clown Corner, anything. Yeah. yeah. Uh, shoot us a message. You can send that to 5050artsproduction at gmail.com or any of our social media. Just look for Campfire Classics Podcast. And when you send in, please include this week's secret pass code, which is half erect. Half erect. <laughs> uh, that's all I got. Anything from you? No, that's it. All right. Yeah. In that case, until next week, this has been Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. Snake-proof boots, snake-proof boots, snake-proof boots, the best. That's not my favorite part of the song. I gotta work on the hook a little more. Yeah. (laughs) For just a second, I thought it was gonna turn into snake-proof boots, snake-proof boots, snake-proof all the way. Yeah, I think I've been listening to Let's go with that. I love it.